This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Insecurities Podcast. I am your host, Kurt Wolf, and I am flying solo again today for an episode that Chris dubbed in a text message, QE Talks SEC. We'll see if that title sticks in the end. As many of you know, every November, the SEC's Division of Enforcement releases its annual enforcement report. And that report came out just a few days ago. So we wanted to get in the booth quickly to talk about some of the key statistics and topics from this year's report. To do that, I've got an excellent panel of guests, Sarah Heaton-Kuncannon, Dabney O'Reardon, and Michael Liftick, all of whom are partners in Quinn Emanuel's SEC enforcement defense practice, all of whom had sparkling careers at the SEC before spinning out into private practice, and all of whom have been guests on the podcast before. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes so you can get their full bios. Of course, you can find them all online. But for purposes of today's episode, let's just get right into it. First, thank you all very much for agreeing to come back on the show and talk a little bit about the enforcement report. Thanks for having us, Greg. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. All right. So as I mentioned, the SEC's Division of Enforcement has just released its annual enforcement results for fiscal year three. Our listeners will know, of course, that the SEC's fiscal year runs through September 30, usually takes them anywhere between five and eight weeks to crunch the numbers and come back with a report. We've got it now. And so we want to break it down for you. Let's take just a quick look at some of the statistics to start things off. 2023 was, by most measures, another record-breaking year for the Division of Enforcement. In fiscal 2023, the SEC filed 784 total enforcement actions, which was a 3% increase over fiscal 2022. That included 501 original cases, or in SEC parlance, standalone cases, which was an 8% increase over the prior fiscal year. And just to put that in perspective, as I said, 784 total cases in 2023. The number was 760 in 2022, 697 in 2021, 715 in 2020, 863 in 2019, and 821 in 2018. So there's a a little bit of a sort of dip and and a bounce back that I think we are experiencing right now. But generally, I think the trend is going up. And that's certainly been the case since Gary Gensler's first full year as chair at the Uh, In 2022, we saw the number, the total number of enforcement actions went up 9% over 2021. And as I mentioned, it went up again 3% this year. For those of us in the defense bar, including I think everyone on this podcast today, uh, they will tell you there's no signs that things are slowing down at the Division of Enforcement anytime soon. And, And I would even suggest that will be the case no matter what happens in a presidential election next year, there are enough cases in the pipeline that I think this division is going to look busy for quite some time. In addition to the raw number of cases that we saw, there were similar trends with respect to the amount of penalties and disgorgement that were ordered in SEC enforcement matters last year. Again, we see a little bit 
of a dip in the, you know, the 2020, 2021 timeframe, but overall, the trend seems to be up. Now, in 2022, the total amount of penalties and disgorgement ordered was $6.4 billion, which was the high watermark by far for the SEC. They didn't hit that number. They didn't really get close to it again in 2023. But the number was still $4.9, almost $5 billion in penalties and disgorgement, which, but for 2022, would have been the highest number of all time at the SEC. We're going to talk a little bit about what is driving those numbers, but you know there are a few of the things that we typically talk about, like sweeps. We saw some of that in the wealth management space. We saw some of that with respect to some insider trading cases that were announced over the summer. By and large, though, the way that these cases broke out last year looks a lot like they do in most years. There were a bunch of broker-dealer and and investment advisor cases. There were a ton of securities offering cases. Uh, there were the usual number of sort of smattering of insider trading cases and FCPA cases, but nothing, at least as I look at it, nothing really jumps off the page in terms of a reclustering or a shifting in terms of focus, in terms of how those numbers broke out. We didn't learn as much, I would say, from the report as we have in past years. Sarah, we talked about this, I think, when you came on to talk about the report last year. We used to get this really nice glossy that was, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 pages long. It had a, a note from the director of the Division of Enforcement, sometimes a note from the chair, nice little paragraphs explaining the programmatic priorities for the division and talking about some of the key cases. We now get more like a three to five page press release, and you can't tease quite as much out. But you know what we did see in there, I think are mostly familiar themes. They talked about market integrity, individual accountability, protecting retail investors. These are the themes that we see coming out of the division year after year, regardless of who is the director, regardless of who is the chair. There were a few more discrete topics that they mentioned in the report this year. They talked about public company misstatements, so-called gatekeepers, uh, ESG-related cases, which I think is a little bit of a stretch, but they snuck it in there. Maybe it's clickbait. I don't know. And then, of course, crypto. And uh, I can't believe we got this far into the episode before I mentioned it. But so those that's sort of high level. That's what I sort of took away from the report. We want to get into that, of course. And I think one of the big things we always have to talk about, even if the staff or certain co-directors didn't like it when we talked about it, we always have to talk about the numbers. What can we glean from the stats? And so, Michael, I wonder, if you look at the number of enforcement actions and, and the amount of uh, sanctions ordered, the penalties and disgorgement, again, minor blip in 2021 and, and maybe 2020. Otherwise, the numbers seem to go up and up year on year. And I wonder if you think there is a certain pressure on the staff to continue to kind of chase these statistics. Yeah, uh, thanks, Kurt. I mean, that's what people always say is that as the year gets to the end, the staff gets a lot of pressure. And for those of us who work there, it is undoubtedly true that by the time the staff is looking at their calendars in June or July, their managers are pressing them to think, what are the cases that they can get over the line by September 30? But I think when we talk about the staff chasing numbers, it's important to actually think about who are we talking about when we talk about that. From the perspective of the thousand or so enforcement attorneys and accountants that are scattered across the 11 regional offices, one year isn't all that different from the next. Maybe they bring one or two cases, maybe they're working a big investigation and they don't bring any cases, but their cadence really doesn't change other than to the extent they have a case that is ripe to be brought by September 30, they may feel some pressure to do that. 
But when you're talking about the director of enforcement and the deputy director, you're absolutely right. If you look at the trend of the numbers, they essentially go up or are now hovering around, you know, whether we call it 450, 500, sometimes a little bit above 500. I, I didn't actually pull it, but I think if we go back to 2017, 2016, I think you might actually see a standalone number of 541 is sticking in my head as potentially the record high. And the bottom line is you don't want to be the director. You don't want to be the chair who is known for overseeing a substantial drop-off in the number of cases that enforcement brings. Whether the press release can say brings a record number of cases or not is probably icing on the cake from the director's perspective. But what they definitely don't want is the stories in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg to be written that say SEC enforces you know, a 25% decline in the number of enforcement cases that they're bringing. So what does that lead to? Well, what that leads to is obviously aggressiveness among the staff across a number of areas, and we'll get into that, which particular areas they're looking for. And you will see changes over time, over administrations, as to where those cases are being brought. But something else that I think we'll talk about is, as an enforcement director looks across the landscape, they start looking for big pickups. Where is that enforcement director going to get 20 cases, 30 cases, the kinds of numbers that get you to the 500, the 450? Because if you're just doing it one micro cap pump and dump at a time, it's very hard to get there. So you do look to sweeps, initiatives, et cetera, to pick up those big chunks. And, and there is a little bit of math that goes on where they start blocking out and get 25, 30 from this, we'll get 30 or 40 from this. And, and then there's sort of the usual flow of cases. Yeah, I, I like this concept of big pickups and it flows perfectly into the next question. I mean, I, I wonder, Sarah, if that's maybe why we are seeing, I think, more sweeps or more enforcement initiatives. I sometimes refer to this as bundling cases, right? Especially if they want a headline. A few years ago, I think at the time Steve Peakin was the co-director, he said something like, we're not going to do any more sweeps. This isn't going to happen going forward. You shouldn't expect any more SCSD or whatever the next sort of self-reporting initiative was. But lo and behold, we do still see a lot of sweeps. Last year, we saw the off-channel communication sweep. There was a marketing rule sweep. As I mentioned up top, there was an insider trading sweep. It looks like there was a 13D, 13G. I think they called that one initiative. I think maybe they do that when they realize, ha, we got 12 or 15 of these. Let's call it an initiative. I don't know. Dabney can probably tell me if I'm right about that. But Sarah, I mean, is, is this maybe why we're seeing more of these kind of sweeps and initiatives? Are these the big pickups the staff needs? I think you're right. And as you mentioned, there were a variety of different sweeps this year. And so to some extent, it depends on the subject matter. And I'm going to let Dabney speak about the off-channel communications case, which is our cases, which are near and dear to her heart. That clearly is a penalty-driven sweep. You get big numbers against big registrants. And in terms of the misconduct that's being investigated, one could say that it's a technical violation or something that doesn't have the same ramifications for the market. On some of the other types of sweeps you mentioned, I think there might be different things driving them rather than the bottom line numbers or the bundling of cases that you're talking about. In particular, the 13G, 13D, Form 4 uh, sweep, which led to a number of settled actions, which individually were very low dollars, as we'd frequently see in the 13D space, but collectively they got more bang for their buck by bundling them together and bringing a headline case. But in that space, 13D in particular 
tends to go in waves of about every 10 years. It falls off the radar of enforcement for long periods of time. And you've seen over the last 10 years, remarkably few 13D cases. So the question becomes, why was it a focus this year in particular? And there are several things that could have been driving that, even from apart from the idea of let's bundle together some cases and see if we can make them more meaningful collectively than any one of them might be individually. So one, first and foremost, is a desire to remind insiders and major stockholders of their obligations under these reporting statutes, the existence of the rules. Also, you're probably familiar with the universal proxy rules. I think you've commented on them on the podcast in the past. It could have been a reaction to the amount of power uh, that the universal proxy rules put into the hands of activist investors to say, but we're going to balance this out. We're going to revisit the disclosure requirements that lead up to an activist investor making a move for control and ensure that people are timely reporting in an appropriate way. There's also likely an interest in looking at potential violations in the space leading up to the amended rules on 13D that landed on October 10th to ensure that the amended rules were capturing the type of misconduct that they were seeing in some of these enforcement actions. And then finally, there may be one or more very high profile major stockholders where the SEC was interested in looking at them in the 13D space, where they don't want that one person to be a lone outsider. And so they sweep in a few additional 13Ds as well to look like it's not as focused on any one individual. But the end result of that is that you do get a very big headline for what otherwise would be a relatively small impact case if you brought it against any one individual on a standalone basis. All right. So so maybe a combination of motivating factors there. You get the benefit of some pickups in terms of numbers, but you're also following some programmatic priorities and maybe getting a headline here or there. Michael, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But Dabney, I don't know if you have a different perspective uh, with respect to the off-channel communication sweep. Does that sort of fit within the framework that Sarah's talking about? Well, just backing up a little bit from my perspective, having recently been there, and I will readily acknowledge that I led a handful of sweeps in the asset management space during my time there. But from the SEC's perspective, sweeps can be really effective. For one, getting the industry's attention to an issue so that they will fix it without the need for endless enforcement actions on the topic. Second, it can be incredibly efficient from a resource perspective for the SEC. That is rather than having to do a slew of separate investigations with document requests and testimonies, historically sweeps can be done using data analysis or something easily identifiable as a violation. And then you can have a standardized order and standardized settlement terms, which can be very effective at getting people to settle quickly because they're getting potentially more favorable terms or they're getting basically the same terms as everyone else in the sweep. And then you move forward. Most sweeps, historically were a one and done situation that was particularly true where there was no intentional conduct there was no harm to investors it's not like the monetary award was being used to reimburse harm investors so using a sweep can be really effective for the sec but once enforcement starts repeating sweeps where there is no harm to investors the conduct really does not pose a substantial risk to market integrity then it does start looking like they are chasing numbers, but in, in term, both in terms of the number of cases filed 
and getting big penalties. And that's really where I'm beginning to see or view the off-channel communication cases. When they were the first slew of cases were brought in that space two years ago now, or a little over a year ago now in the prior fiscal year, it sent a really strong message to the industry. I think everyone who works in this space at a law firm received phone calls from people in the industry seeking guidance on how to fix any issues they may have or how to improve their programs to make them even better than they already were. And the message was really clearly sent. But then we saw again this last fiscal year, another group of cases were brought. And again, these are not cases where there's any quantifiable investor harm. The money is all going to Treasury. And it's really beginning to be difficult to see the benefits of continuing to bring a sweep in this area and similar types of areas where they do one and then should they really continue to do more in that space. So to me, yes, there can be benefits both to the SEC and arguably to the industry from sweeps, but it really has to be carefully thought through by the SEC when they're doing it, when they're continuing to do it and how they do it. And there's some things that to the extent we continue to see sweeps that were successful in the past being repeated again in the future without really any money going back to investors, then it, I think the question is legitimate about whether or not they're chasing numbers at that point. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe a, an alternative theory is that rather than chasing numbers, they're actually chasing headlines. And and I think maybe that's true also with off-channel, right? The, the first off-channel communications case was like two Decembers ago. I think it was a one-off. I got some headlines, but it was sort of like a flash in the pan. But when you start bringing 40 of them in a single press release, of course, it's going to get a little bit more attention. And I think actually Chair Gensler alluded to this phenomenon a couple of weeks ago at the Securities Enforcement Forum. We were all there and got to hear this live and in person. But he said, there are also those cases that will garner the attention of lawyers, compliance officers, and the like far beyond this room. And yes, often get reported by the press. They help change behavior and bring greater compliance with the law. Uh, Again, I think these are some of the bundling cases we've been talking about. You bring one, nobody cares. You bring 12, again, maybe you get the headline. But Michael, I, I wonder what you think about that. Is bundling maybe an effort just to augment the deterrent effect of enforcement actions? Yeah, it certainly is depending on the violations. So typically cases that are bundled are the kinds of cases that Sarah and Dabney have been discussing. They are relatively minor, typically strict liability, either books and records or some sort of routine filing type of violation that lend themselves to bundling because, quite frankly, the potential defendants on the other side aren't really going to fight that hard. Mm -hmm. It's just easier for them to take the penalty, take the remedial relief, and move on with their lives. No one's accusing them of fraud. No one's uh, accusing them of running a bad or shady business. It's just simply, there's a lot of rules in the book and you didn't follow one of the rules. And so there's some consequences to that. So if you do bundle them, if you do it as an initiative or a sweep, or even if it's not officially that you bring five of them on one day, it is a way of focusing attention of the industry on it. An example of that is not only 13Ds that that Sarah mentioned, but also Rule 105 under Reg M, which is sort of a very technical trading restriction rule. I don't think there's actually been an official Rule 105 sweep, but when the commission brings those cases, the division tends to put three, four, five of them together. Again, the idea being that they're trying to focus the industry's attention on the importance of 105, and a one-off Rule 105 case just isn't going to really even hit anyone except for the closest 
SEC followers, that's probably present company included, but anyone else in the world excluded, get their attention. But look, I mean, let's also be very clear. There are lots of ways that the SEC gets headlines and <laughs> shocked to hear that there's gambling at Rick's. I mean, the SEC does chase headlines and, and there are ways to do that in, in, besides uh, bundles. So for example, one of the recent cases, it's not this year, well, maybe we'll be talking about it a year from now, but it's top of mind is the Solar Winds case, mm-hmm. which is a, a cybersecurity disclosure case, but they charged the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer. That got a lot of headlines. That got a lot of industry attention. SolarWinds is litigating that case, so it's not even a settled case, but it certainly got headlines. And that was one case against one player. But notably outside the fiscal year, so not in this particular release, which means that the gatekeeper cases featured in the release have significantly less of that kind of impact of the SolarWinds case, which is, as Michael says, is kind of the poster child for a gatekeeper case. Sorry to cut you off, Kurt. Oh, no, I mean, they're definitely going to be talking about that throughout this year and <laughs> until the end of the fiscal year and probably after. And maybe that was time so that they would get both ways, right? They knew we were going to talk about it and continue to talk about it for a year. So I don't know. Well done to, to Chair Gensler's marketing team if he's planning out that far in advance. I want to turn to a topic that, Dabney, you actually teed up a couple of minutes ago, and it's this concept of investor harm. I mean, it's something the, the SEC should be focusing on. Uh, You noted that a lot of the cases, we maybe don't see it. And maybe that's because through the enforcement actions or the bundling of cases, they are trying to um, encourage people to develop uh, more robust cultures of compliance. I think I got all the buzzwords into that one sentence. But it does feel like we're seeing more cases or over the course of the last year, saw more cases that are sort of technical violations or foot faults. Uh, Some of the the late filings that, that Sarah was talking about or minor books and records violations. And so I, I wonder if this enforcement environment is starting to look a little bit like broken windows, which we talked an awful lot about when, when Michael was on the staff and in, in Chair White's office a few years ago. I think it, it could start to look like that. And certainly in terms of the off-channel communication cases and some of the other cases that we're seeing, the whistleblower type cases regarding 21F17, things in that area. If I put on my SEC hat again, I would really talk about some of those efforts are arguably to prevent harm to investors before it even happens, especially with respect to the whistleblower statutes and protecting people's ability to be able to come in and talk to the SEC. But again, as I said before, the more those types of cases get, I mean, those are message cases to try and get the industry to clean up. Every time the SEC devotes resources to that type of case, they are necessarily not devoting resources to trying to get into a fraud that's currently going on, to stop the fraud that's currently going on, to file the litigated case, which can be very demanding on the staff's time in order to either recover money that can go back to harm investors. So there is certainly a weighing and balancing that has to be done. And it does seem that things are tilting a little bit more towards a broken windows approach. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year. At this point, it seems like the SEC has brought, maybe has, hopefully they've sent their messages that they wanted to send on those topics and they will adjust accordingly, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do over the the next year in that area. If I could just jump in on that, I think the the broken windows approach that uh, my old boss, Chair White, announced at the beginning of her tenure was often criticized, but if you think about what the intent really was, it was to bring a renewed focus to a lot of these various statutes and rules 
that just had not been enforced at all, either ever or in a very long time. And so there were things like Rule 105, 13D, certain municipal finance disclosure rules, piggyback registration rules. The idea was all of the rules in the book matter, and that SEC was going to enforce all of those. But there is a balance to be struck. And towards the end of that administration and into Chairman Clayton's administration, you saw people saying, well, wait a minute, you're doing all of these smaller cases, but you know what, what about the SEC's quote unquote bread and butter, accounting fraud, financial reporting fraud? And so there were efforts within the division of enforcement to stand up focus groups to look at those types of cases and make sure that as the division was trying to look across all of the rules, it wasn't missing sort of the core Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, et cetera, those core financial fraud cases that people expect the SEC to bring and they expect the SEC to bring to actually keep the market safe. What I would say about what's going on now is if it is a pivot back towards broken windows, I don't think you get the bang for the buck unless you say that's what you're doing. And if all you did is listen to Chair Gensler's speeches and said, what is important to the SEC's division of enforcement based on his speeches? You would think the only thing going on in the financial markets that is worth correcting right now is crypto. That's it. Maybe like 5% off-channel communications. Oh my God, people are using WhatsApp and crypto. That's it. So a broken windows approach in practice as we dissect the numbers doesn't really work unless you tell people that's what you're doing. I agree. I see Sarah nodding along. I mean, what's your take on getting this balance right with the sort of investor harm mandate versus the broken windows approach? Where where are we? Yeah, it's interesting because I actually agree with both Dabney and Michael on various points. So what's interesting about the resource point that Dabney makes is that often these types of violations actually are not particularly resource intensive because they are strict liability or there are other elements that are significantly easier for the staff to prove up. So you can, with relatively minimal investiture of time, send your message case and make clear, as occurred, I'm no SEC apologist, but make clear that these technical violations and enforcement of the technical violations is what makes our markets function in a way that ultimately leads to investors being able to place their trust into the overall system. That said, that's not just what you're seeing here. You're also seeing what I would call fraud light technical violations where you have something like Activision Blizzard, where what is the message that's being sent by that case, where you have a massive penalty for an internal controls violation. And as Commissioner's person Ueda just said two days ago in, in the context of yet another dissent, it's problematic to be using internal controls, which should be internal controls over accounting, statutes to bring these type of fraud-like cases with tremendously large penalties. And so the question is, what is the message that's being sent when you have a number of those types of technical violations that really look like they're more along the lines of the staff invested a tremendous amount of resources in an investigation over a course of several years and then ultimately was not able to get to the evidence to charge as a fraud case. And so instead it got dialed back and messaged out in this kind of confusing way where the market can't really take a a clear message out of that of what they should be doing in terms of conforming themselves to the law. Yeah. I mean, I think some of this gets at the challenge of just figuring out what the staff's priorities are or what the commission's priorities are right now. I mean, Michael, you're right. If all we were doing was looking at Chair Gensler's speeches, 
you might think this was the you know crypto enforcement agency. It certainly is not. But there are some consistencies or near consistencies year over year. So for example, every year, cases against investment advisors, investment companies, broker dealers take up a big chunk of the SEC's overall total number of enforcement cases. And in some respects, last year was more of the same. The SEC brought 173 cases against broker dealers. That included 140 standalone cases. That was 18% of all cases. The SEC also brought 189 cases against investment advisors and investment companies. 139 of those were standalone cases. That was 18% of the total number. Those two pieces, individually, they tied for second in terms of being the biggest chunks uh, of cases that the SEC brought. So Dabney, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of this being an area that continues to be a priority for the Division of Enforcement. Certainly, IAs are going to, uh, investment advisors are going to remain a high priority area. There is a specialized unit devoted to the group, and they are really important market participants. And I believe that Chair Gensler, when you look at his rulemaking, you can see the level at which he thinks asset managers require additional attention from the SEC. Now, the 18% figure that we saw this year was lower than it had been in prior years, which is not terribly surprising given the focus over the last few years on crypto and other things. Again, what Michael and Sarah both said that crypto is has really been the primary focus or one of the focuses for this administration has really been evident in the numbers of those cases. The SEC only has so many resources. And if you're going to bring those cases and you're going to litigate those cases, that's necessarily going to draw upon resources to bring. So that is likely why we saw a drop this year in cases against IAs. But I don't expect that drop to really continue for very much longer or any longer. I think it's a momentary blip. And even with that drop, like you noted, Kurt, this is a quite a substantial number of cases and focus for the enforcement division. What we saw was what we pretty much expected, which was a sweep regarding the marketing rule. The marketing rule compliance date came into effect in November of 2022. And a lot of us were saying, just wait for the marketing rule sweep. And sure enough, in September of 2023, the marketing, the first marketing rule sweep Happened. I say first because that marketing rule is quite comprehensive and that first sweep really seemed to be the low-lying fruit. It was about hypothetical performance advertising on retail advisors' websites. So I think that one was pretty easy for the SEC to catch. And I anticipate that we're going to see more next year. The other was about private fund compliance with the custody rule. They did another sweep. That was the second sweep that they've done on that particular issue. That's interesting because now after the private fund advisor rule was promulgated in August, every private fund advisor now is going to have to do. So that may result in more cases in the future. And then we saw the two ESG cases, both of which involved investment advisors that were brought last year. So we saw them hitting a lot of their priorities. And apart from even explicit priorities, when the SEC or the Division of Enforcement announces something as a priority, is you can look at the rulemaking to really see what is a priority for the Division of Enforcement. So for example, you have artificial intelligence is clearly something that about, and there are proposed rules in the asset management space and broker-dealer space on artificial intelligence and the use of artificial intelligence. And I expect that 
they're going to start kicking the tires on that came up in the exam priorities as well. So there's definitely going to be more cases in the asset management space. And none of the cases that came out last year were really shocking to me based on the priorities that were in place or sent the message that was sent by the chair and others within the agency. Yeah, I mean, no doubt we're going to continue to see a ton of uh, action in this space, right? And you're absolutely right to kind of tie the rulemaking to the enforcement actions, right? Just like we saw on the back of the marketing rule, there are obviously a lot of making proposals floating around out there that target the private fund space. We had uh, Brian Corbett on from MFA. He's the CEO and president of MFA a couple of episodes ago to just talk about the rulemaking onslaught that is really hitting the private funds space. And when those rules, when those final rules are out and being implemented, you can only imagine it's going to lead to more and more enforcement activity in the space. So if finishing second is a relative lull for the IA space, look out, everybody. Definitely find Dabney online. Give her a call. Uh, But there are certainly other priorities. Uh, And and Michael, I wonder if you were able to glean some other programmatic focuses just from looking at uh, this year's annual enforcement report. Uh, Of course, individual accountability is on there. It always is. I mentioned it up top. But what other things jumped out at you? Sure. I mean, there's a few things. And one of the things we haven't really touched on, we've we've, we've talked a little bit about, are the cases where there really is no investor harm and the focus uh, on those cases, whether they're through sweeps or otherwise, and yet still getting significant monetary relief for them. In terms of individual accountability, and also just worth mentioning the focus on crypto, it is really interesting as you look at this release, if you think about the release as prime real estate for the division to tell its story, obviously how it tells its story, the priority in which it puts things, how much ink they spend on it is telling. And one thing that actually jumped out at me was the almost third of a page that, that is dedicated to the tout, so-called touting cases in the crypto space. Talk about low impact cases. These are cases that involve celebrities, sports celebrities, actors, actresses, rappers, etc., who allegedly were paid to promote a cryptocurrency. Now, there's a touting statute, Section 17B of the 33 Act, that basically says if you're promoting a security, you have to disclose how much money you're getting paid. Okay, fine. That statute's been on the books forever. It's mostly used in pump and dump cases where the promoter of the pump and dump doesn't accurately disclose. They used it here under the theory that the tokens that the actors or rappers or whomever were promoting were securities. Except if you pause for a moment, does anyone think that Paul Pierce, Lindsay Lohan, Neo, or or any of these others were sitting there doing a Howey analysis before they were paid to, to promote whatever particular token? Of course they weren't. And so ringing these people up, doesn't send any message to anybody other than maybe celebrities, you might not get paid as much as you think. I think the Lindsay Lohan case was $10,000. I mean, it was as small time as you can get. And there's virtually sort of no impact on the market. And yet they're spending a lot of time talking about these cases. Sure, from the staff perspective, they're really fun. You get to go after a celebrity. Somebody probably got to take their testimony. I suppose that's fun. But really, is that a good use of the commission's resources? Keeping with the theme of where things fall in the release as being important, is there a quieter bottom dweller than FCPA? They are right there at the bottom of the release. They barely get a few lines. They only came above trials, and I'm sure Sarah will have something to say about that in terms of (laughs) how important the division thinks litigation is. But there is still supposedly a, a unit, a specialized unit devoted to FCPA cases, and yet they do get eye popping numbers when they bring their cases. 
you just don't hear a lot about FCPA. And, and I think that's just worth noting. The other thing that also jumped out at me, insider trading cases. There actually was a little mini sweep, I think last year where they brought, what was it, 14 or so insider trading cases on the same day. They don't talk about that in the release. And whether the idea is, well, post Rajaratnam and post all of the expert networks cases, insider trading is basically cured, or it's just not a focus of uh, the division is a little bit of a question, but it was notable how little ink was spilled on insider trading, which again, is one of these areas I, I think of as, as sort of core SE bread and butter. It's the perception of keeping the markets fair, et cetera. And then finally is the prominence of cooperation. And here I'll give the SEC a, a tiny bit of credit because being out on the defense side for a while, it is almost a mantra that the SEC is terrible at recognizing cooperation. And so while the standard line is, of course, you should cooperate with SEC investigations, when your clients say, well, sure, we're happy to cooperate, what do I get for that? In the past, it had been really hard to articulate tangible benefits. And I do think the division is trying to turn that around by devoting substantial space, pretty in the middle of the release going on for over almost three quarters of a page, talking about rewarding meaningful cooperation, talking about the particular cases where public companies got zero penalties and, and what they did to achieve that cooperation. So I give them some credit there. What's interesting also is there, there's also an official cooperation program it seems to be lying dormant. I don't think the SEC did any or NPAs or official cooperation agreements that they're acknowledging a- anymore. And so the question is, why is that tool lying fallow? But we, we still should give credit for for what they uh, are doing here, where they are really trying to skyline what they're doing. Now, question for an individual defendant, is there really any way to get out of cooperation other than money remains to be seen? Because of course, companies are happy not to write checks to the SEC, and they can usually deal with the downstream consequences of a charge. For an individual, it's all about the charge. The money is usually actually, sometimes they don't want to pay the money, but really it's the, it's the name and shame aspect of the charge that's more problematic. And will the SEC Division of Enforcement be willing to either pass on charges or agree to reduce charges in exchange for cooperation? And you don't see that in, in the release. And then finally, again, just to kind of poke fun at my former colleagues, I think ESG is essentially been reduced to ESG is whatever the SEC says it is at this point, that they are flagging all kinds of cases as ESG, but cases that you would think are ESG are not getting identified. So they do flag a couple of cases by asset managers for calling certain funds green when they weren't. Okay, I get that. But then they talk about cases like the Activision Blizzard case which is an internal controls case. I had no idea that was an ESG case until I read it in the press release. And I wonder if anyone else in the world also knew it was an ESG case until (laughs) they read in the press release that the SEC was telling them it is an ESG case. They also referenced the McDonald's case, which was a case against uh, the CEO of McDonald's for inaccurate disclosures as to the reason for his termination. So while the label remains hot, I think it is an interesting question as to how many cases are really out there that would fit in a broader, more universally accepted definition of ESG. All right. So that's a lot. I don't know. I think at one point, Sarah, you looked like maybe you wanted to jump in. I think it was resource allocation, but I'll open the floor for some reactions. 
Yeah, I think the thing where I was actually waving my arms was apparently Michael doesn't read Taylor Swift's Twitter because she quite clearly <laughs> has said that she engaged in a Howie analysis and determined that she didn't want to take compensation for marketing a security. Um, but I generally agree with everything that, that Michael just walked through. I would add, not only did FCPA prof flag this morning that the FCPA unit is apparently a unit in search of a case, given that 50% of FCPA actions are self-reports and that the number of FCPA actions has kind of hovered around nine to 11 over the last several years. You could also throw the public finance unit into that same bucket. Michael's former unit, Complex Financial Instruments, it, it does beg the question of why are considerable SEC resources considering uh, continuing to go into some of these areas where the actual number of cases brought over the course mm -hmm. of a year seems to be very nominal. Activision Blizzard, that's the social piece of ESG, um, which I think everybody always forgets about. But as Dabney has flagged previously, exams isn't even making ESG a priority for 2024. So I think it's very fair to ask the question of, why is it in the tail end of the 2023 report? And is this the last gasp that we're going to hear of ESG going into next year? Yeah, I think the thing that jumps out for me, and I, I talked a little bit about this uh, with Sandra Hanna a couple of weeks ago on the show, but it, it's this concept of cooperation, Michael. You're right. They devote a lot of space to it in the report. And surely it's to try to encourage people to self-report or come in and participate in some of these uh, leniency programs or other initiatives. But what does it mean now, right? I mean, again, we got this sort of statement from Chair Gensler a few weeks ago where he says they, they want meaningful cooperation, right? That means going above and beyond to self-report, cooperate, and remediate. But it's like, are we just going to keep repeating the seaboard factors over and over again? Because what I'm not seeing in any of the releases are meaningful descriptions of the conduct companies or individuals undertook to earn that credit, right? There used to be a little bit more detail in those releases, especially if you think back to like the Ralph Lauren case. But now we get, I don't know, two sentences. The company also got cooperation credit for self-reporting and timely remediating, like period, full stop. Now we're going to talk about the violations charged and the sanctions. So I don't know. I would like to know a little bit more than that, other than Chair Gensler and, and the director, Pinky Swear, that you'll get some credit if you come in and talk to them. So I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, Michael, you're right. At the very bottom, the very bottom of, of this year's report was the section on what, what the litigated matters entailed and how the trial team is doing. I know Sarah pays attention, not only because she used to be in the trial unit, but also because she likes to have fun with uh, some of the current members of the trial unit on panel discussions from time to time. Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was going on this year with the trial unit? It looks like they had a pretty big year, right? 40% of the standalone cases were litigated. So what, did, what can you tell us about that? Oh, but that stat has problems, Kurt. So <laughs> the, I would actually say, like anecdotally, you can tell that the number of litigated actions is in fact increasing. And we predicted this coming into the Gensler administration. It's continued to hold true more cases are going to litigation, and that's for two reasons. One is the SEC's demands for charges, relief, injunctive relief, monetary relief have gone up and up, and more litigants, whether, whether registrants or otherwise, are choosing to put the SEC to its proof, which is leading to more cases going litigated in district court and um, more trials occurring. 
there is some transparency into the trial results because in this administration, they've started publishing press releases again that tout their wins at trial. They do not issue press releases when they lose at trial, but there are press releases out there. You can tell the cases are going and you can tell that more cases are going to trial and that the SEC is getting verdicts. The point that I have made on prior panels that you remarked on is what can we take out of those verdicts? Anytime the SEC gets a win at trial, even if that's a partial finding of liability by the jury, even if the judge ultimately knocks the remedies down to near zero, the SEC will report that as a win. So a case can go litigated as scienter-based fraud. They win on a negligence-based fraud. The judge awards very nominal relief. This is what we saw happen in the Lemelson case. And ultimately, that is touted as a win by the SEC. So my continued message is more litigants should be pushing back, more cases should be going litigated, because often if your client is willing to put themselves out there and take the risk of going litigated with the SEC, you will end up with a better outcome than what you were looking at in a pre-filing potential settlement resolution. And this thing that all of us were told in the past, which is if you force them to go litigated, that offer you had pre-litigation is never going to be on the table again. That simply isn't true. Lots of cases are settling even very shortly after filing for better outcomes than what were on the table before they actually filed the complaint. Now, to circle back to your 40% going litigated, the reason why that's incredibly misleading is that, that includes all of the settled cases that the SEC elected to file as district court cases as opposed to administrative proceedings. So if you look at the appendix to the release, offering fraud, for example, or offering securities offerings, unregistered securities offerings, which sweeps in a vast number of the crypto cases, obviously, those are all SECV. They were filed in district court, but there were agreed upon settlements before filing, where immediately after filing, getting the judicial assignment, they filed their consent and final judgment, the court blessed it, and those cases resolved as settled. There is always some risk, of course, that some Judge Rakoff out there is going to reject the settlement and force the SEC to actually litigate those cases. But to say that you're going litigated in 40% of cases when those are just settlements by another name is a crazy statistic to me for them to be citing. Um, the other interesting things with this release versus the way in the past that trial results and litigation results were reported is that they don't actually give the number of cases that tried litigated or administratively and the outcomes of those cases. Instead, they lump in as victories in the same section of the release, pretrial motion practice. So they have the library summary judgment outcome in there without mentioning Ripple, where of course that significant loss in pretrial resulted in the case ultimately being dismissed voluntarily by the SEC. So it, it's a little bit of, of selective reporting on the part of the SEC about what they're, they're putting into this litigated case section. And yeah, that actually gives me some question on what is the message that they're trying to send in that particular portion of the report? Because if ultimately the message that the SEC wants to be sending is we're not afraid to litigate cases, look, we brought 40% of them litigated, I think it's pretty easy for us out here in the defense bar to look at that stat and realize that it simply doesn't have any credibility to it. And 
even for people who aren't kind of SEC insiders, it's fairly easy to look at that stat and realize it doesn't have any credibility to it when you realize that nationwide there are 100 trial lawyers versus 3,000 people in the Division of Enforcement. Mm -hmm. They are not bringing 40% of their cases litigated. And Sarah, to your point that you made about the what relief you get in lit- when you litigate versus pre-filing, you mentioned Libri. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I seem to recall like when, when even after they won motion for summary judgment, the SEC asked for a huge monetary award to be ordered by the judge, and they didn't end up getting anywhere near that amount in the end. And it was ended up being, I think, a lower six-figure amount that they got, and they were looking well beyond that and seeking well beyond that. So I thought that was an interesting result as well. Yeah. And ultimately that one was in large part driven by ability to pay and the financial condition of the company. But it is very true that courts often are nowhere close to the amount of monetary relief that the SEC thinks is appropriate. And you get into things like per act versus per violation penalties Courts are very unwilling to look at a 17A charge and say, well, that's actually 200 violations. They're much more likely to look at it even post-trial, even post-verdict, and say there is one 17A violation, and so we're going to award one statutory penalty for on the fraud tier for that violation that is significantly lower than what the SEC typically demands in their pre-filing offers and settlement negotiations. So I think the takeaway is if there are in-house practitioners listening or or other folks out there in the compliance space or or in the business community, the SEC touts a lot of wins, but these aren't necessarily clean wins. And I think conventional wisdom is if you can try to find an off-ramp, maybe you should take it. But that's not always always the case. Uh, And you should certainly at least consider whether a better outcome, a more favorable outcome might be one by putting them to their proof. Let them file the case and see how it shakes out because it's not always a loser. And they are resource constrained. So if all of us in the defense side band together and force them to litigate some of these cases, <laughs> it's going to result in more wins for all of us collectively. High tide rises of all boats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. La- last question. I'm going to just throw this out to the group just to see if anyone had any thoughts on the types of remedies that the SEC, for example, it looks like the SEC is imposing either more undertakings or imposing undertakings more frequently or more creatively than maybe what we've seen in the past. So I don't know, any final thoughts on just the types of things the SEC is demanding to resolve cases? So I'm going to hearken back to a conversation that Dabney and I had a few months ago, which is the SEC should not be asking in undertakings for things that it doesn't have the authority to do itself. And so kind of on the negative undertaking side, We're seeing now in a variety of settlements, often in the crypto space, the requirement that the respondent undertake to do something that the SEC could not otherwise require the respondent to do, or in some cases require a third party to do. So there often is, I think across the board now, we're seeing requirements for publication of the order. I don't think that's an innocuous ask. I think the reason why the SEC wants to make sure that each of the crypto entities who settle with the SEC publish their order is so that then in the platform cases that they're bringing, they can say that the platforms were on notice, that the SEC viewed these products that they were offering on their platforms to be securities. And that's what gives rise to 
Coinbase in the wake of the Wahi case saying whether or not they are going to continue to list the nine tokens at issue, that, that type of thing. So I think that there is a considerable amount of overreach happening in the undertakings front. And what happens is one person settles to that undertaking. And then in the next case, it becomes, well, this is a standard undertaking. We require it in every case. And there's just not enough pushback on what the uh, authority of the SEC is to actually be requiring these things as a component of a settled federal securities law violation. On a more positive spin, uh, I'll try to end on a positive note instead, I do think that some of the creativity can have a positive effect. So if you look at something like Markham, where there was an IC put in place and undertakings, Markham was the auditor that had a significant impact on SPAC audits for many SPACs, leading to restatements kind of across the SPAC industry. And reading between the lines of the undertakings there, they actually seem very directed toward ensuring that Markham does not take on more clients than it can appropriately service, that it's keeping itself apprised thoroughly of its clients' operations so that it can offer correct audit findings. And again, I have kind of threshold questions about how within the scope of the authority of the SEC this necessarily is, but from an investor protection perspective, it actually does seem like a clean way of the SEC without getting too much into the micromanagement of how an auditor runs its internal affairs, um, trying to get better outcomes that are gonna create the transparency and disclosure that investors need um, when they're investing in something like a SPAC or a startup or a, a less tested issuer. And from my perspective on the remedies question, to me, I, was, I thought the disgorgement figures were notable. Uh, post the Supreme Court's decision in lieu, we really saw a significant drop off for a couple of years of the disgorgement numbers that the SEC was getting. And it seems that that now does not exist anymore. The challenges presented by lieu no longer are present for the staff and whether or not that's because they've dug in more and developed the evidence in their cases on those points or the statute that Congress passed addressing disgorgement really rectified some of the issues that arose post Lou. I will note that even Lou himself did not get the offsets that he thought he should have gotten. He got far less after the case was remanded and went back to the district court. So I think the disgorgement numbers probably reflect and, and the rebound from the past couple of years re- reflect in part work the staff has done to manage Lou and what happened with Lou and how they what that meant for the enforcement program. And I'll just raise one issue that is really not <clears throat> talked about in this release, but it has to do with, as long as we're talking about undertakings, it has to do with waivers. A lot of the various undertakings that are proposed by staff trigger various disqualifications for registered entities or limit the ways in which you can raise capital. And in the past, the way that staff would get around this is by granting a waiver to that disqualification, because the view was that getting the remedial relief in this particular case was more important than the particular disqualification. And oftentimes those disqualifications are such that the entity won't settle unless they can get the waiver. More recently, the waivers have become very rare as those of us who are in the trenches trying to settle these cases have learned. The problem is it makes these undertakings, some of which can be quite creative, quite targeted at the conduct, harder to get and harder for entities to agree to. I don't think the division and the SEC have really struck the right balance yet. I think they continue to struggle with it. There's obviously arguments on both sides of that, but 
to the extent that the Division of Enforcement wants to actually be able to say, we're here to prevent future violations, and there are some remedial steps, future undertakings that a company could, to, could undertake to prevent that, and then those don't go forward because of the waiver question, there, there are some really important sort of rulemaking and policy questions behind that can be driving some of what we're seeing in the relief that's being granted. All right. Thank you, everybody, for weighing in on that last question. Uh, I think we're going to call it for today. And thank you all for coming on the podcast today. You had about two days to digest the report. And so uh, kudos to you all, because we went deep on a lot of different topics. Appreciate the hard work and, and the expertise that you're willing to share with our listeners today. Well, thank you, Kurt. And I think all of your listeners now have a little bit of a feel for what it's like to uh, be in one of our email chains. So this has been fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Dabney O'Reardon, Sarah Heaton-Concannon, and Michael Liftick. We always love to hear from our listeners. Hit us up on social media with your thoughts and comments and share topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Enforce underscore Update, and you can find Chris at Ekimoff CPA. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.